You're listening to a teaching series by Cross Culture Church of Christ. If you'd like any more information about our church, head to crossculture.net.au. Feel free to share this podcast with others, but please don't alter the content in any way. We hope you enjoy it. What a hectic week it's been. I, can remember, I can't remember a time when things were changing as rapidly as they have uh, in the last 10 days. Uh, we've gone from being mildly concerned about something to the place where pretty much everything has changed about the way, the way we operate as a church and as a society. Why are we making these changes? Well, this graph will help you to understand. Uh, we're trying to help arrest the exponential increase in in cases of the coronavirus before it's too late. Uh, They've increased four and a half times over in the last week. Uh, I've got to say that I'm really thankful for the team of leaders that uh, we have here, uh, for elders, pastors, staff, ministry leaders, life group leaders, and those who have given us such uh, good professional advice uh, that's informed the complex decisions that we've had to make. Uh, and helped us to get to the place where we've been able to transition to totally online operation uh, in such a short space of time. Uh, But of course it's God who has given us uh, all this, all these people, all this gifting and the energy uh, to do this. Uh, So we thank and praise him most of all. At times like this when so much is changing, uh, we need to anchor ourselves in what doesn't and what cannot change, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, the news that people like us uh, who have fallen short uh, of God's good requirements can and have been forgiven uh, through the death of Jesus on the cross. And by God's grace, uh, we are set power, free from the power of sin uh, and accepted into God's family forever. Uh, This amazing news sets us free from the paralyzing fear of death so that we can be freed up uh, to love God and serve others. And this is what we're going to be focusing on over the next three weeks as we go through this great letter of Paul uh, to Titus. Uh, Gospel impact, we're calling this three-week series. Gospel impact uh, in the church, the home uh, and the world. The difference that the good news of Jesus makes. Titus, like Timothy, is one of the people who became a believer uh, through Paul's ministry. He was a Greek and went to Jerusalem with Paul about 15 years earlier uh, when Paul went there to explain his gospel uh, to the apostles there. So they have a long history uh, and it seems like Titus was a seasoned church planter. Paul had left him on this island of Crete uh, where they'd both been preaching following Paul's first imprisonment, uh, released from it in Rome. Uh, We don't know the details, but a church was planted there. Uh, We do know that there were people uh, there uh, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost from Crete. So Paul's writing to Titus to spur him on in the work uh, that he left him there to do. Uh, And to help him to know how the good news that Paul taught there uh, impacts the church. 
So let's look at this under three headings. When the gospel impacts a church, firstly, God's truth uh, is brought to light. God's truth is manifest. Uh, Paul begins the letter by introducing himself as a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus. It's interesting, those two terms, isn't it? Uh, literally, he says, I'm a slave of God. Uh, he was one who had been purchased by God through Christ. He was owned by God, totally, and totally sold out to doing uh, whatever God told him to do. And as an apostle, along with the twelve, uh, he has a unique authority in the church. Under God, the apostles laid the foundation, uh, the teaching that Jesus gave them, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that they passed on to others and it came down to us. Now notice here that the purpose of this uh, is for the faith of the elect, those who God chose to be his people. Uh, so Paul's slavery or his servanthood and his apostleship, which speaks of his authority, uh, were for this purpose, to proclaim the good news so that God would call out uh, his people to believe and to teach them so that they would be built up and that they would remain faithful. And he talks about two essentials of being a Christian, faith and knowledge. The world usually pits these things against each other, makes them out to be opposites. You know, you either believe in fairy tales or you believe in facts. Um, things are either based on one or the other, faith or knowledge. And of course, our world tells us uh, that faith is a useless thing. But in the Bible, the two go hand in hand. Uh, knowledge of the truth must be followed by trust in the one who is the truth. Our faith is in the truth, the great truths of the Bible, that God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, created everything, including us. Uh, we're accountable to him, uh, that we have ignored him, uh, that he sent his only son uh, to this earth to die, and that 2,000 years ago he did die as a criminal for our sins, and that he rose again uh, and he's coming back. Now, all this is knowledge based on facts of history, at least the parts of it that have already happened. And it's based on what God has revealed to us. And we believe it. So faith and knowledge working together, not against one another, but working together. And it's a faith and knowledge that is in the hope of eternal life. It brings us into this sure hope of eternal life which God has promised before the beginning of time. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, that God promised this way back before anything happened. And God does not lie, uh, Paul says to Titus. He's totally trustworthy. Uh, actually, we can be more certain of his promises uh, than we can be that the sun will rise tomorrow morning or even that we will be here to witness it. God does not lie. And at the proper time, God manifested his word, his truth, his good news through the preaching uh, which Paul brought to Crete. So this is the basis of who we are as a church. We believe in the good news of Jesus, which has come to us through the apostles, now written in God's word. And it's Paul who brought that message 
uh, to the people of Crete, manifested it, uh, made it known. Its light was shed there. Uh, Notice that it doesn't stop there. It's truth that leads to godliness, we see in verse 1. Since God is truth, since Jesus is the truth, then all truth will lead us to him. And if it doesn't, then it's fake. If it doesn't make us more like Jesus, uh, then we need to ask big questions uh, of ourselves. Have we really taken it seriously? We'll look more at that when we get to point three. So point one, the gospel uh, is God's impacts the church by God's truth being brought to light. Secondly, when the gospel impacts the church, leaders are people who are impacted by the gospel. Uh, Paul goes on in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, left Titus there, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul had uh, left Titus the job of establishing the churches on Crete, uh, setting up leadership and attending to all the things that go along with establishing a church. To get an idea of the scale of this job, uh, the island of Crete is about the same area as Greater Melbourne. So it's a huge task. If we were to view it in our local terms, it would be like establishing leadership in all the suburbs of Greater Melbourne. And without a car or phone or Zoom or WhatsApp or Facebook or email or anything like that. And to add to the pressure, Paul says in chapter 3 verse 12 to Titus, I'll meet you in Nicopolis, uh, that's in Greece, uh, in the winter. He may not be expecting the job to be done by then, but he would definitely want to hear that it's well underway. And certainly we know that Titus moved on to Dalmatia in modern day Croatia uh, within a couple of years. So this job is clearly not going to get done by Titus on his own. He needs leaders and he needs them fast if these congregations are going to be taught, protected and cared for. He needs leaders who have been impacted by the gospel. Notice here in this passage he uses two words to describe these leaders, uh, elders and overseers, they're different words uh, in the original. Uh, But they are used interchangeably here and also in Acts 20. Uh, They are the same role, the role of elder or bishop, leader. And they are plural. He is to appoint elders in all the churches. And there's interesting, leadership is always plural in the Bible. Uh, Even God's leadership, uh, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit work together uh, to lead God's creation. And we know, don't we, from uh, what goes on around us and in our world that leaders get into trouble when they think it's singular. Almost inevitably, uh, we become consumed with our own importance uh, when we go solo. And Now Paul describes here requirements for elders, what they should be like. There are three areas, broadly their character, their conduct and their convictions or their doctrine. It's all to do with who they are and what they believe. It's not about their skill set or their management ability. Now these things may be important, uh, but they aren't the top priority. Uh, It's character uh, that counts. 
in leadership. Character, the force of character by which people accept leadership and follow it. Uh, Peter Adams says this, Christian workers get hired for their ability and sacked for their character. And that's true. So what uh, Paul is saying here broadly is that if character is right, then other things will fall into a place. So what does he say? Uh, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So in verse 6, he focuses on uh, the family life or the home life of the elder. Firstly, the husband of but one wife. Literally, it means a one-woman man. Uh, now, the focus here is not on gender or even marital status. It doesn't mean a single person can't be an elder. The focus is on morality, that they're not the kind of person who is chasing women. Uh, they don't cheat in relationships. Uh, because if they're doing it there in the home, they will do it in the church and in other contexts. Uh, people who can't maintain integrity and fidelity uh, in their closest relationships aren't suitable to lead in the church. This is a much debated issue, isn't it, when a politician or prominent person uh, gets into trouble or commits adultery uh, as Barnaby Joyce did. There's always discussion, isn't there? Uh, well, this is nobody's business. That's his private life. The question is, is he a good politician? Uh, some say that their private lives are none of our business. Uh, but God doesn't say that here, does he? He says, actually, it does matter. It matters uh, that those of us who lead, lead with integrity. And it matters that that integrity shows in our relationships. So faithfulness is the key there. Secondly, he talks about their children. What he's saying is that their commitment to the gospel impacts those closest to them, their family, their kids, that their kids are believers and not wild and rebellious, which literally means unable to be corrected. It does raise the question, doesn't it? When do your kids stop being kids? Does it mean if you've got a 35-year-old who's wandered away from the Lord that you can't be an elder? Um, well, the word used for children here is occasionally used of uh, adult offspring, but mostly it's used for younger kids still in the care of their parents. The next part in verse 7 and verse 8 uh, gives 11 characteristics of elders. Uh, five of them are negative, things that they must not be, and six are positive. Uh, the five negative ones are areas of strong temptation. Things like pride, arrogance, temper, drink, uh, power, money. So they're not to be arrogant, self-willed, stubborn, overbearing. Uh, Jesus warned his disciples, didn't he, about the overbearing kind of worldly leadership, abusing power uh, that often goes with a leadership position. Don't be quick-tempered. Uh, leaders, as we all know, have to deal with uh, difficult people and difficult situations. And it's easy to get fed up and to lose it. Uh, Paul says an elder must not be like that, must not be quick-tempered. 
not drunk, uh, not given to drinking a lot of alcohol, not violent. The elder is to lead by example, not by force, not greedy and not after monetary gain. And so Paul is saying in these five key areas, there needs to be self-control by those in leadership. Next, the list of six positives. Uh, it must be hospitable, uh, a lover of the other. Philo Zenon, the lover of the Xeno that we were talking about the other day. And secondly, loves what is good. Whatever is God-honouring, uh, a leader is to love that. Uh, Self-controlled, uh, having a sober and sensible uh, view on life and on their leadership. They must be upright, uh, which means not leaning over or bent, but upright, just and fair uh, in their dealings with people. Holy, so devout in their attitude to God, but also in the way that works out in their lives. Disciplined, uh, living a life that's not slack, not a person who wastes hours on things that don't contribute to God's work or to the good of society. Again, the idea here is if he can't control himself, uh, how can he manage God's church? This is the character and conduct uh, that God is looking for in elders. But it's also about convictions. So the elder must hold firmly uh, to the trustworthy word as taught. Elders are to be people who are firmly grounded in the trustworthy message, the apostolic message of the gospel as was taught to them and for us, uh, the teaching of God's word. The kind of truth that he talked about later, uh, truth that is vital and leads to godliness, it's absolutely necessary and leaders must be firm in it. This is why our church aim is so important and so important that it is focused on Christ. Now the reasons that leaders are to be like this are twofold. Firstly, so that people can be taught sound doctrine. They can be taught the right thing. Good teaching from God's word. And secondly, that they can refute people uh, who refute God's word. Rebuke people who can refute God's word. Now the word that he uses here is not just uh, that they're able to contradict those who oppose sound doctrine, uh, but to actually overthrow them in argument. To show from the scriptures uh, that what they're teaching is wrong. And of course, to do that, you need to be firmly grounded in the scriptures. And people who teach error are very good at derailing you. And Paul is saying here that leader must be a person who is able to stay on track and to clearly refute error. Well, that's a massive long list, isn't it? And you're probably thinking here, especially if you're a leader or an elder, thinking, well, I think I better resign. Um, well, the, none of us are sufficient for these things, uh, but they, and they are high standards. and We must never cease striving to reach them, whether we're in leadership or not. We need to uh, pray uh, that... Uh, those of us who are elders and pastors, that the Lord will keep us from temptation 
and help us to repent and get up and go on when we fail. The third uh, thing that Paul deals with here, the third impact of the gospel in the church in verses 10 to 16 is that the leaders deal with error. We've already touched on this. But Paul goes into more detail here of a particular case uh, in, on the island of Crete. For there are many uh, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, who are these people? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? They're insubordinate. They are rebellious. Uh, in contrast to the leader, the elder who submits firmly to the trustworthy message of the apostles, these people refuse to submit to it. And what they say is mere talk. It doesn't show in their lives. Uh, worse still, it leads people astray. It deceives them. Now, Paul singles out uh, those of the circumcision group. Uh, he indicates that there are others, but he says especially uh, those of the circumcision party. People, these are people actually who followed Paul around and tried to reconvert uh, his converts. You can read more about that in his letter to the Galatians. Uh, these are people who say that repentance and faith in Christ are not good enough. Yes, it's fine to believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross, but you need more. And these people were saying you need to be circumcised to be fully acceptable to God. Uh, this is the whole Jesus plus thing, isn't it? And these people appear in a different form in every age. The gospel, yes, it's fine to believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross and be saved by grace, but uh, you need to add something else. Baptism, speaking in tongues, uh, acknowledging a particular human leader, uh, the heresy is many-pronged and you'll see many forms of it in our world. Uh, but the, the key thing about it is that by adding to it, it devalues the work of Jesus on the cross. It says that it's not enough. It elevates man to the place where he can do something to improve on what Jesus did. And it's totally wrong, isn't it? We need to be very careful that we don't head that way uh, in any way, shape or form. Uh, to put the spotlight on anything other than Jesus and his work uh, is to take the spotlight off Jesus and his work. It's more dangerous than the coronavirus, actually. Uh, we don't like the coronavirus, at least I don't. And we do lots of things to stay away from it. Uh, that's why none of you are here while I'm preaching because we don't want to get it. But the idea that we can save ourselves or add to our salvation is a very enticing one, isn't it? It feels good, doesn't it, to think uh, that we can do something towards getting into heaven. And so it's a dangerous idea because it appeals to our self-esteem and our ego. And for that reason, Paul is very, very strong about it, and we are too. Uh, because to add to the gospel is to negate the gospel. And you only have to have a brief look at church history uh, to see that whole slabs of the church have gone this way, uh, where they're more dependent on what they do, their ritual, their experience, their good works, 
uh, than what Jesus has done. And whole denominations have gone down that path. So Paul says to Timothy, watch out. Uh, teach these, rebuke error, refute error, and teach the leaders uh, to refute it. Actually, he throws in a quote uh, from Epimenides, a 600 BC Cretan poet, Cretan poet, uh, and says that these, he gives a stereotype about the Cretans, uh, that they were, they were always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I'm glad I'm not a Cretan. Um, and Paul says this testimony is true. And actually what he's saying to Titus is, Titus, be aware of the culture that this church is operating in. All cultures have their blind spots. I think one of the big ones for us in Australia is greed. So there are three things that these people have got wrong. Uh, they pay attention to the commands of men. They pay attention to the commands of people rather than to God's word. Commands that are of mere human origin. Jesus had this problem with the Pharisees, didn't he? He accused them of letting go of the commands of God in order to hold on to the traditions of men. Behind this is the idea that scripture is not enough. That we need something else in addition to God's word. Second thing that these people have got wrong is they have a wrong idea of purity. They think it's external and has to do with ritual, but all the time they are internally corrupt in both mind and in their conscience. And again, this is the idea that Christ is not enough. The purity that we have been given by imputation from Jesus through his death is not enough, they're saying. So scripture is not enough, Christ is not enough. Thirdly, they claim to know God, but in their actions they deny him. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul does not hold back uh, when he rebukes a wrong idea. The problem here is there's a massive gap between what these people say and what they do. Uh, John Stott has said there is ritual without reality, a form without power, claims without character, faith without works. These three things actually give us three tests that we can apply uh, to any system uh, that claims uh, to get us to God. Uh, firstly, where does it come from? Is its origin divine or human? Does it come from scripture or tradition? Paul says it's scripture alone, God's revelation alone. Secondly, what is its essence? Is it inward or is it outward focused? Is it spiritual or is it ritual? Is it just going through the motions or does it have a deep-seated connection to God through Christ? In other words, is it Christ alone? Uh, is it relying on Jesus alone or is it adding something or somebody else? Thirdly, what is its result? Is there a transformed life or is there just a system of do's and don'ts? 
So Paul is very clear about what these leaders must do. He says they must be silenced. These people who are uh, bringing error, they must be silenced. They're upsetting families. They're teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. He says, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So they've got to be silenced, he says. Don't give them any airtime. They lead others astray. And they must be rebuked sharply because the error uh, is so wrong. And if people believe it, it will take them away from salvation. Notice here that the purpose of this is not so that these uh, people who have gone in the wrong direction can be kicked out of the church or bounced out of the church. No, it's so that they will be sound in the faith. That's the objective, that they might see clearly and believe the truth of the gospel. So this is how the gospel must impact the church. Uh, Faith and knowledge that's based on the truth of the good news uh, leading to godliness and that it's seen in the leadership, the character, the conduct and the convictions uh, of those who lead us firmly believing in the message of the gospel and dealing with it when people go and depart from it. So here's a question for all of us at a personal level. How much has the gospel impacted us personally? Do we keep coming back to the cross where we know that we are saved by Christ alone? And do we go out from there to live a life that reflects how thankful we are for what Jesus has done. So let's examine ourselves. Uh, Is what we believe uh, based solely on God's revealed truth in the Bible or are we believing other stuff? Secondly, let's pray for our leaders uh, that we would be people who stand firm on God's word uh, and live it out, teach it well, And call out those who refute it or add to it or twist it. Friends, let's uh, continue praying uh, for ongoing real gospel impact in our church and through our church as we live through these turbulent times and seek to reach others for Jesus. Let's take time to pray and respond to his word and uh, then we'll share together in the Lord's table. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your goodness and mercy. Thank you for, even before time began, for your mighty promises that you would fix up the mess that we've made, the mess that's around us but worst of all is within us. Thank you so much for sending Jesus so that we can be cleaned up inside. Lord, I pray that all of us uh, watching this today might know your grace and mercy in our lives, the cleansing work of your Holy Spirit that applies the work of Jesus to our hearts, setting us free from sin and bringing us to trust in him by faith. Uh, Lord, help us as a church uh, to keep letting this gospel impact us personally uh, in our leadership, in the way that we deal with people who want to take us away uh, from your gospel truth. 
Uh, Lord, I pray for each one of our leaders that you would be with them, you would encourage them in their in their relationships, uh, in in their following of you personally and in the way that they lead our church. We thank you for each one and we pray that in your goodness and mercy uh, you will keep all of us following you. And we pray this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.